0: Psalm 52 and it starts just by telling us who wrote it. For the director of music, a master of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? You who practice deceit, the tongue plots destruction, it is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the lands of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you. In the presence of your faithful people, and I will hope in your name, Age. Becky, thank you. Let's pray as Phil comes. Lord, we just thank you that we can read your word this morning. And we pray that you would move our hearts. Lord, you'd inspire us. You'd lead us to see the Lord Jesus as we listen to Phil now speaking from this psalm. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well,
1: it's... Incredibly good to be here this morning, uh, and see everybody, everybody's faces all smiling. It's it's amazing. It's really uh, it's just really encouraging. Also a bit unusual. Um, I've spent the last six months preaching to a camera, um, and I've also not been heckled for the last six months. So uh, it's, uh, it's you know, be kind, basically, is what I'm saying. So the Book of Psalms. Let's uh, let's go to our passage. The Book of Psalms is the or or the conditions of our hearts. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, the Psalms that we've been looking at have been teaching us what to pray. Uh, What to pray when we feel as though God's judgment, His hand of judgment, is upon us. Or what to pray when we need to repent for sins, sins that we've committed against God, that have broken our relationship with Him. But you know, the Psalms are also God's comfort to us, comfort when we're going through difficult times. Because the Psalms teach us how to pray, not just what to pray, but how to pray. They teach us how to cry out to God in loads of different situations, both good and bad. And they teach us how to come out of those situations with a better worldview, a more solid foundation to our souls. They teach us to grow spiritually. And that's why we've been going through these psalms over the last few weeks. And that's also why Psalm 52, the psalm that we've just looked at, is in the Bible, Um, For us, because in it, David is faced with the greatest injustice that he had ever known. And he can do nothing apart from cry out to God. And in recording this psalm, he teaches us a right worldview in these situations, the things to say, the way to express deep emotions of the heart broken by injustice. So that we, too, can share this right way of speaking to God. And this morning, it might be that we are uh, facing the most unjust situation of our lives. One where it seems as though the devil has won. Where, Where no one can do anything about it. It might be a situation specific to yourself. It might be you've been falsely accused, misrepresented, shouted down, humiliated, exploited, embarrassed, and you don't know where to turn. It might be that the unjust situation... ...situations that we want to cry out to God about are more general. The injustices in our world of human trafficking, of third world sweatshots, of the power of the pro-abortion lobby in this country. Well, this psalm gives us practical and personal ways of how it's possible to process all the emotions that we go through when injustice like this overwhelms us. And we need to hear this today. Because if we're not careful to process how we respond to injustice, it can lead to a wrong perception of God and a powerless Christian witness in this world. For example, if we don't process our emotions caused by injustice rightly, we can be in danger of judging God for allowing injustice, or for not intervening when it happens. That's the response of the, purpose, of the person whose view of God is not big enough. Alternatively, if we don't process our emotions caused by injustice rightly, we can be in danger of thinking God is so big he won't engage, that he stands aloof and will not intervene or restore righteousness in the world around us. That's the response of the person whose view of God is too big and impersonal. Do you see the balance that David invites us to strike here? The balance of a God who is both personal and sovereign, big and near. That's what David wants us to engage with in this psalm. And that's why he speaks in an emotional way, a real way, a, a wonderful way, knowing that God is both big and near. And as we follow this psalm, we see that we too can allow ourselves to grieve and to hope in God's arms that hold both us and our situation that we're facing. So let me just explain the backstory to the events of this psalm. That's where we're going to go first. Uh, The backstory, the title says it all, as we read, is uh, for the director of music. um, When Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. You have to do a bit of digging in the Bible, but it's in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 22. And there is recorded that David as a young man was on the run from the king of Israel at the time, King Saul. Saul was the king, but he'd turned away from God. And God had rejected him as king and has had actually appointed David as his successor. So Saul decides that he's going to hunt down David and destroy David because Saul wants his own descendants to be on the throne. So Saul's jealous of David and trying to hunt him down. But David on the run, tired and hungry, stopped for a rest at a ha- at the house of a family of priests and sought the help from the high priest Ahimelech. David explained he needed food and weapons and Ahimelech and his household helped David, but watching them was a man called Doeg. Later on, when Saul came to Ahimelech's uh, town looking for David, Doeg reported to Saul everything that had happened. As retribution, Saul gathered the priests together accused them of treason and ordered his guards to kill everyone. All the priests, all the other men in the town, all the women, all the children. Because they had helped David. Saul's guards refused to do that. And Doeg, eager to please King Saul, stepped in and carried out his command to the letter. David was hiding from Saul in the wilderness region of Israel when Ahimelech's son Abiathar, who had escaped, came and ported everything he'd done. All the people who had helped David at Gibeah had been killed by Doeg. That's the message that David received. It seemed that evil had won. And David responds in two ways. Firstly, he promises protection of Abiathar. And actually, Abiathar becomes the high priest of of, of David's reign. And secondly, David writes this psalm. And in it, he writes these. I'm just going to underline three points that he makes. And the first is, in the psalm, he says, be real with God. That's the first four verses. Be real with God. So David's opening address is full of raw emotion. It's a tragic lament of all that Doek had done. They say this, Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? You who are a disgrace in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It's, a, it's like a sharpened razor. You're, you love evil rather than good. Falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. David's calling out Doeg for the worst of his character. He's a boaster. The Hebrew word is not necessarily describing someone who is outwardly boastful, but someone who is smug and despises others and manipulates events. This is Doeg. And the problem is his heart. When you look at verses 3 and 4, what's repeated is what he loves again and again. What things his imagination is filled with It's harming people, it's gaining wealth, it's gaining power because people don't matter to Doeg. He's a man whose sin is out, out of control and his heart is so hardened to God's word and ways that whereas Saul's soldiers draw the line, they get the command and they say to Saul, no, that's too much. Doeg says, yes, that'll do for me. And David writes this. He pours out his heart to God and he's real with God with what he sees. In the face of overwhelming sorrow and injustice. Almost every verse begins with you, you, you. So in the language of the psalm, it's written as though it's almost addressed to Doeg. But when you look later on, you find this is a prayer. And these words are therefore directed actually at God, not Doeg. That's that. You see that in the final verse. The psalm ends with David speaking to God directly. And the reality is he doesn't just turn to God at the end of the psalm. Right through the psalm, he's been speaking to God about Doeh. So so David's processing his emotions, processing his his feelings of of despair and anger. And and that's what being real with God looks like. It's not sugarcoating our feelings. It's not processing them as uh, as though we have to use the right theological terminology. But we tell God exactly how we feel our thoughts about the situation. And as we tell them, this is what David discovers, that God comforts us with his nearness. And David begins to find that point of trust and surrender and security in him. There's a book on prayer by a guy called Paul Miller called The Praying Life, and in it he echoes what David says. He says this, Why is it important to come to God just as you are? Well, if you don't, then you're artificial and unreal, like the Pharisees. Do you know, rarely did they tell Jesus what they were thinking. Jesus accused them of being masked actors with two faces, hypocrites. They weren't real. The only way to come to God is by taking off any spiritual mask. The real you has to meet the real God. He is a person, and he will draw near. Being real with God, therefore, is not about keeping a stiff upper lip or sweeping emotions under the carpet. Neither is it about allowing our emotions to define our actions and our personalities. The way to process deep hurts, deep injustices, is that we pour out our hearts to God. We tell him our trials, just like David did our, our, our sufferings our, our sorrows our doubts and to do that is not an act of faithlessness but rather an act of faith Then you might be asking how so well by expressing our emotions and hurt to god we begin to immerse ourselves in god's presence to know the realness of his comfort and his feelings about the injustices too but as well as modelling being real with God, David also shows us how to wait for God's intervention. And that's the second thing that David does here. He waits for God's intervention. So it's telling that, whereas the situation demands revenge and the writings of wrongs, David, who was the one man in all of Israel who had the power and authority and the, and, and the backing from Israel to do that, he doesn't intervene himself. He waits for God. So he could have written um, in in um, in verses five to seven, surely. Um, uh, sorry, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. What he does write in verse five to seven is this. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and they will laugh at you. Saying here now is the man who did not who did not make God his stronghold. What David is doing is he's saying, look, I trust that God will, in the end, bring about the ruin of this man, and I don't have to. And there are two powerful images in these verses. Verse five is the image of a man being evicted from a house, and, and verse seven, the image. Oh, so verse six, the the image of the man. Who is who, who is who is uprooted. So in the end, this mighty man, that's a sarcastic comment, by the way. David is being really sarcastic there. Uh, you know, in Chronicles, he's got this massive list of mighty men who do massively amazing things uh, uh, in military terms for him. And here Doeg, who is a, a slaughterer of the innocent, innocent is, is dismissed in that term. It's, it's ironic, it's sarcastic. And David says, this mighty man This mighty man will be brought down by God and God's people will rejoice at the wickedness. And he's saying, look, I don't have to take revenge. He could have said, I will bring you down. I will snatch you up. I will uproot. I will do this. But he doesn't. He says, God will. And that's how he processes his emotions here. He says, God will bring justice. God will. Will bring rightness. As he has promised, and in Deuteronomy 32, God says, This is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. So God is actively working against justice in this world, both now and in eternity. That's what David rests on. David's prayer here is about waiting for God's intervention. And it reminds us not to side with evil. No matter how evil evil is, and no matter how often it seems that evil wins, we're not to begin to believe that the way of the wicked is better. That's what David is trying to underline here. That's why in verse 7 he imagines what could be said at Doeg's funeral. He says, here now lies the man who would not make God his refuge. But trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. David models a right response to injustice. He doesn't gloat over the end results. He remembers God's timing for God's intervention because it reminds him that the lifestyle of the wicked will end in God's judgment. He takes his emotions to God, he's real with God. And he grounds them in God's sovereign plan. Knowing that one day, God will right injustice and God will bring evil to account. And that's a hard discipline to follow. It really is. We live in a culture of instant satisfaction. So when we see injustice, we have a heightened desire and need to right wrongs now. And it might be that we're struggling with injustice now. And if if that is us this morning, can I encourage you to see the scope of God's sovereignty, both... That what happens now doesn't surprise God, but also that the wrongs that we endure now will be righted by God. Perhaps not today, but one day the wicked will be uprooted, and we can trust God for the timing of that. So David is real with God, and he waits for God's intervention, but finally at the end of the psalm, he finds comfort in God's unfailing love. And that's the last point. He finds comfort in God's unfailing love. Again, as we saw last week, the word for love here is hesed. The love of God that is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever. Those of you with a Jesus storybook Bible will recognize that phrase. That's the phrase that that Bible uses for God's steadfast, unfailing love. It's a great description of hesed. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So look at verse 8 and 9 with me if you've got a Bible in front of you. David says this, but I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love. Hesed, there it is, forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name because your name, God, is In contrast to Doet, who's who's described as an uprooted tree, David describes himself as an olive tree flourishing in God's hands. In other words, David's foundation is not going to break under pressure or turn on him because his foundation is the hesed of God. Whatever his circumstances, however he feels, whatever has happened, He will flourish. He will hope. He will praise. That's what he ends on in this psalm. And, you know, the ultimate example of that is Jesus' death on the cross. Because like David, but greater when Jesus was crucified as God's greater anointed king, he had endured the greatest injustice the world had ever known. He was rejected. As God's anointed king, as king of heaven, as king of the universe, and he was killed by those whom he came for. And on the cross, Jesus echoes this song because he's real with God. On the cross, he cries out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He tells God how it is, and we could spend years exploring the height and depths of what Jesus was expressing in that one sentence. It's the most gut-wrenching, real, raw expression of the pain of injustice the world has ever known. Not just that Jesus has been rejected by men, but that he was being cast out into the wilderness of total isolation by his Father as he bore the sins of the world on himself. Jesus' cry on the cross is the greatest and most perfect expression of being real with God. And like David does in this psalm, but greater, Jesus on the cross also proclaims the end to injustice and the downfall of evil. Because amazingly, alongside that cry of despair, like David does in the middle section of this psalm, Jesus announces victory over injustice on the cross when he cries, it is finished. Because on the cross, the devil and all evil are brought down to everlasting ruin and are uprooted just like Doeg. On the cross, the devil is just like Doeg. Why? Because whereas Doeg, Doeg's evil finally brought David to the throne, God uses the devil's evil and hatred against God for the greatest act of salvation. To save the lost whom the devil thought belonged to him. There is the ultimate expression of trusting in God's timing. And like David finds in this psalm, but greater, when Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus, the king of kings, is truly established as God's king in God's temple, both now and in eternity. Because now Jesus has conquered death and hell, and all who trust in him find peace with God. And in eternity, when he comes again to this world, he will come as the greater king who brings his peace and his justice. And all who trust in him will praise him and find their peace and hope in the authority of his name forever and ever and ever. And although in this psalm, David might not have been able to see God's goodness in what Doeg had done. He trusts in God and finds comfort in God's hesed love. And he hoped in a greater king to come who would right the wrongs, who would deal not with just doeg sin, but all the sins of the world. We are often in the same boat as David when injustice strikes, when evil seems to be winning. And when it seems as though God is silent. But but the invitation of this psalm is to realize that those who trust in God are, as David, sure and steadfast as an olive tree, planted in the temple courtyards. Because God is good, whatever our circumstances. And, And like David, because of Jesus, in God's love, we know that God sees the bigger plan. That God's compassion is with his children, so that no matter what injustice they they face, there is hope. That when we face great injustice, when it seems that our circumstances are out of God's control, we might be able to say, I am like an olive tree, flourishing in God's house. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you, God, have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, your authority, for your name, the powerful name of King Jesus is good. And if we can't echo the end of this psalm in our circumstances right now, then can I suggest we start by clinging to the truth that all wrongs will be righted when Jesus returns. Until then, we won't see the whole big picture in this life. But what we can see now is the Hesed love of God reaching out to us as Jesus died on the cross to deal with our sin, to bring us into relationship with God, into his everlasting arms that hold us and care for us and love us in the deepest, darkest times of our lives. And it becomes our great anchor. And our comfort. And practically, David teaches us here that rather than talking about our emotions to friends or getting stuck in the cycle of repeated bitter conversations or believing that we can't speak to God because we have to sugarcoat it, we know now what the right Christian response is. This psalm says it's okay to be in that place of hurt and despair. And still be real with God. This psalm says we can rest in his timing. Be be confident in his ways of bringing justice to this world. Of righting all the wrongs. Of wiping every tear from our eye. of, 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 Of destroying evil. That is God's timing. And to rest in it. Until then. Until then. To come to God... Knowing his Hesed love and immersing ourselves in it, and understanding as we do so, we will find ourselves in his house like a planted olive tree, not uprooted, but secure, at peace, in God's arms. That are both enormously big but also wonderfully near. Let me pray. Father God, we worship you for this real psalm. Lord God, the circumstances that brought it about are, are awful. And we recognize that kind of awfulness in our world, around us, and in what we might be experiencing now. But Lord God, I pray that you would teach us more and more what it is to be real with you. Teach us more and more what it is to rest in your timing and not seek revenge ourselves, but love those who, who do evil to us. And Father God, to think on and meditate on your love, your hessed unfailing love. So Father God, as we do so, May you surround us in your hearts. May you allow us the privilege of the knowledge of your comfort and your care and your peace. And may we hope, Lord God, hope for the day when Jesus returns in power, in glory, in person to bring righteousness and justice to this world, to undo all the wrongs, to wipe every tear away from every eye and to restore your people to himself fully and wonderfully. Lord God, teach us in this psalm and teach us to hope. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly to right the wrongs and to bring your people home. We pray this in your name. Amen.